0: Hey everyone, welcome back to the AI Alignment podcast series at the Future of Life Institute. Today, we'll be speaking with David Pierce and Brian Tomasik. David is a co-founder of the World Transhumanist Association, rebranded Humanity Plus, and is a prominent figure within the transhumanism movement in general. You might know him from his work on the Hedonistic Imperative, a book which explores our moral obligation to work towards the abolition of suffering in all sentient life through technological intervention. Brian Tomasik writes about ethics, animal welfare, and far future scenarios from a suffering-focused perspective on his website, ReducingSuffering.org. He has also helped found the Foundational Research Institute, which is a think tank that explores crucial considerations for reducing suffering in the long-term future. If you have been finding this podcast interesting or useful, remember to follow us on your preferred listening platform and share the episode on social media. Today Brian David and I speak about metaethics, key concepts and ideas in this space, explore the metaethics of Brian and David, and how this all relates to and is important for AI alignment. This was a super fun and interesting episode, and I hope that you find it valuable. And with that, I give you Brian Tomasek and David Pierce. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast.
1: Thank you, Lucas. Glad to be here.
0: Great. We can start off with you, David, and then you, Brian, just giving a little bit about your background, the intellectual journey that you've kind of been on, and how that brought you here today.
2: Uh, Yes. My focus has always been on the problem of suffering, a very ancient problem. Buddhism, countless other traditions have been preoccupied by the problem of suffering. But I'm also a transhumanist, and what transhumanism brings to the problem of suffering is the idea that it's possible to use technology, in particular biotechnology, to phase out suffering, not just in humans, throughout the living world, and ideally replace them by gradients of intelligent well-being. Transhumanism is a very broad movement, embracing not just radical mood enrichment, but also super longevity and super intelligence. And this is what brings me and us here today, in that there is no guarantee that human preoccupations with the problem of suffering are going to overlap with those of post-human super intelligence. Awesome. Uh, and
1: so you, Brian? I've been interested in utilitarianism since I was 18, and I discovered the word. I immediately looked it up and was interested to see that the philosophy mirrored some of the things that I had been thinking about up to that point. So I became interested in animal ethics and the far future. A year after that, I actually discovered David's writings, The Hedonistic Imperative. Along with other factors, his writings helped to inspire me to care more about suffering relative to the creation of happiness. And since then, I've been what you might call suffering-focused, which means I think that the reduction of suffering has more moral priority than other values. And so I've written about both animal ethics, including wild animal suffering, as well as risks of astronomical future suffering, what are called S-risks. You had a recent podcast episode with Kai Satala to talk about uh, S-risks. I, in general, think that from my perspective, one important thing to think about when steering AI is what sorts of outcomes could result in large amounts of suffering, and we should try to steer away from those possible future scenarios.
0: Given our focus is on AI alignment, I'd like to just offer a little bit of context. Today, this episode will be focusing on ethics. The AI alignment problem is traditionally seen as something which is prominently something technical. And while a large, large portion of it is technical... The end towards which the technical AI is aimed or the ethics which is imbued within it or embodied within it is still an open and difficult question. Broadly, just to have everything defined here, we can understand ethics here just as a method of seeking to understand what we ought to do and what counts as moral or good. The end goal of AI safety is to create beneficial intelligence, not undirected intelligence. And what beneficial exactly entails is still an open question that largely exists in the domain of ethics. Even if all the technical issues surrounding the creation of an artificial general intelligence or superintelligence are solved, we will still face deeply challenging ethical questions that will have tremendous consequences for Earth-originating intelligent life. And so this is what is meant when it is said that we must do philosophy or ethics on a deadline. And so in the spirit of that, that's why we're going to be focusing uh, this podcast today on metaethics and particularly the metaethics of David Pierce and Brian Tomasek, which also happen to be ethical views, which are popular, I would say, among people interested in the AI safety community. But I think that Brian and David have enough disagreements that this should be pretty interesting. So again, just going back to this idea of ethics, I think that given this goal, ethics can be seen as a lens through which to view safe AI design. And it's also a cognitive architecture to potentially be instantiated in AI through machine ethics, and that would potentially make AI's ethical reasoners, ethical decision makers, or both. Ethics can also be developed, practiced, and embodied by AI researchers and their collaborators, and can also be seen as a discipline through which we can guide AI research and adjudicate its moral impacts in the world. There is an ongoing debate about what the best path forward is for generating ethical AI. Whether it's a project of machine ethics through bottom-up or top-down approaches, or just a broad project of AI safety and AI safety engineering, where we seek out uh, corrigibility and docility and alignment and security in machine systems, or probably even some combination of the two. It's unclear what sort of the outcome uh, of AI will be, but what is more certain, though, is that AI promises to produce and make relevant both age-old and novel moral considerations through areas such as algorithmic bias and technological disemployment and autonomous weapons and privacy, big data systems, and even possible phenomenal states and machines. We'll even see new ethical issues with what might potentially one day be superintelligence and beyond. So given this, I think I'd like to just dive in first with you, Brian, and then with you, David, if you could just get into sort of what the foundation is of your moral view, and then afterwards we can dive into the meta ethics behind it.
1: Sure. So at bottom, the reason that I place foremost priority on suffering is emotion, basically the emotional experience of having suffered myself intensely from time to time and having empathy when I see others suffering intensely. And so that experience of either feeling it yourself or seeing others in extreme pain carries sort of just a moral valence to me or kind of a spiritual sensation, you might call it, that seems different from the sensation that I feel from anything else. And so it seems kind of just obvious at an emotional level that, say, torture or being eaten alive by a predatory animal or things of that nature have more moral urgency than anything else. And so that's the, the fundamental basis. You can also try to make theoretical arguments to come to the same conclusion. For example, people have tried to advance what's called the asymmetry, which is the intuition that it's bad to create a new being who will suffer a lot, but it's not wrong to fail to create a, a being that will be happy, or at least not nearly as wrong. From that perspective, you, you might care more about preventing the creation of suffering beings than about creating additional happy beings. You can also advance the idea that maybe preferences are always kind of a negative debt that has to be repaid. So maybe when you have a preference, that's sort of a bad thing. And then it's only by fulfilling the preference that you erase the bad thing. So this would be sort of similar to the way in which Buddhism says that suffering arises from craving. And the goal is to cease the cravings, which can be done either through fulfilling the cravings, giving the the organism what the organism wants. Or not having the cravings in the first place. So those are some potential theoretical frameworks from which to also derive a suffering-focused ethical view. But for me personally, the emotional feeling is the most important basis.
2: I would very much like to uh, echo what Brian was saying there. I mean, there is something about the nature of intense suffering; one can't communicate it to someone who who hasn't suffered. I mean, someone who is, for example, born with you know, kind of genital anesthesia insensitivity to pain. But there is something that, that is self-intimatingly nasty and disvaluable about suffering. However, evolution hasn't engineered us, of course, to care impartially about the suffering of all sentient beings. My suffering and those of my genetic kin tends to matter far more to me than anything else. And insofar as we aspire to become transhuman and posthuman, I think we should be aspiring to this godlike perspective that takes into account the suffering of all sentient beings, that the egocentric illusion is, is a genetically adaptive lie. How does this tie in to the question of posthuman superintelligence? There, of course, there are very different conceptions of what posthuman superintelligence is going to be. I've always had, in what one might say, a more traditional conception of uh, superintelligence, in which posthuman superintelligence is going to be our biological descendants enhanced by AI, but nonetheless still our descendants. However, there are what might crudely be called two other conceptions of posthuman superintelligence. One is this kind of Kurzweilian fusion of humans and our machines, such that the difference between humans and our machines ceases to be relevant. But there's another conception of superintelligence that you might say in some ways is the most radical, is this the uh, intelligence explosion that was first conceived by I.J. Good, but has been developed by Eliezer Yukowski, Miri, and most recently by Nick Bostrom that conceives of some kind of runaway uh, explosion, recursively self-improving AI. And yes, there being no guarantee that the upshot of this intelligence explosion is going to be in any way congenial to human values as we understand them. I'm personally a skeptic about the intelligence explosion in this sense, but it, yeah, it's worth clarifying what one means by post-human superintelligence.
0: Wonderful. And so right before we dive into the the meta-ethics behind these views and their potential relationship with AI alignment uh, and just sort of broadening the discussion to include ethics and and exploring some of these key terms, I'd just like to touch on the main branches of ethics to provide some sort of context and mapping for us. Generally, ethics is understood to have three branches, those being meta-ethics, normative ethics, and applied ethics. Traditionally, applied ethics is viewed as the application of normative and meta-ethical views to specific cases and situations to determine the moral status of said case or situation in order to decide what ought to be done. An example of that might be applying one's moral views to factory farming to determine whether or not it is okay to factory farm animals for their meat. The next branch moving sort of upwards in abstraction would be normative ethics, which examines and deconstructs or constructs the principles and ethical systems we use for assessing the moral worth and permissibility of specific actions and situations. This branch is traditionally viewed as the formal ethical structures that we apply to certain situations, and people are familiar with deontological ethics and consequentialism or utilitarianism or virtue ethics. So these are all normative ethical systems. But what we'll be discussing today is primarily uh, metaethics. And metaethics seeks to understand morality and ethics itself. It seeks to understand the nature of ethical statements, attitudes, motivation, properties, and judgments. It seeks to understand whether or not ethics relates to objective truths about the world and about people, or whether it's just simply subjective, or if all ethical statements are in fact false. It seeks to understand what people mean when they express ethical judgments or statements. So this gets into things like ethical uncertainty and justification theories and substantial theories and semantic theories of ethics. And obviously, uh, these are all the intricacies of the end towards which AI may be aimed. And given that, and given even sort of the epistemology of metaethics and ethics in general, that'll also have major implications for what AIs might be able to discover about ethics or what they may not be able to discover about ethics. So again, today we'll just be focusing on metaethics and the metaethics behind David and Brian's views. So I guess just to structure this a little bit, just to really start to use the formal language of metaethics, as a little bit of background again, semantic theories and ethics seek to address the question of what is the linguistic meaning of moral terms or judgments? So these are primarily concerned with whether or not moral statements contain truth values or are arbitrary and subjective There are other branches within semantic theories, but there are main two branches. The first of that is uh, non-cognitivism. And non-cognitivism refers to a group of theories which hold that their moral statements are neither true nor false because they do not express genuine propositions. So usually these forms of non-cognitivism are things like emotivism. Or people think that when people are expressing uh, moral views or attitudes like suffering is wrong, they're simply saying an emotion like boo hoo to suffering, or I'm expressing the emotion that I think that suffering merely bothers me or is bad to me, rather than you expressing some sort of truth or false claim about the world. Standing in contrast to non cognitivism is just cognitivism, which refers to a set of theories which hold that moral sentences express genuine propositions. So that means that they can have truth or false values. So this is to say that they're capable of being true or false. Turning back to Brian and David's views, how would you each view your moral positions as you've expressed thus far? Would you hold yourself to a sort of cognitivist view or a non-cognitivist view? I guess we can start with you, David.
2: Yes, I would just say it's just built into the nature of, let's say, agony, that uh, agony is disvaluable. Now, you might say that there is yeah, nothing in the uh, equations of physics and science that says anything over and above the experience itself. Something like redness. I mean, well, yeah, redness is subjective. It's mind-dependent. And yet, unless one thinks minds don't exist in the physical universe, nonetheless, redness is an objective feature of the natural physical world. And I would say that for reasons we simply don't understand, the pleasure pain axis discloses the world's inbuilt metric of value and disvalue. It's not an open question whether something like agony is disvaluable to the victim. Now, of course, someone might say, well, yes, agony is, is disvaluable to you, but it's not disvaluable to me. But I would say that this reflects an epistemological limitation and that insofar as you can access what it is like to be me and I'm in agony, then you will appreciate why agony is objectively disvaluable.
0: Right. So the view here is sort of a cognitivist view where you think that it is true to say that there is some sort of intrinsic property or quality to suffering or joy that makes it sort of, I guess, analytically true that it is valuable or disvaluable.
2: Yes, one has to be very careful about using something like analytically because, yeah, if someone says that God is talking to me and it is analytically true that these voices are the voices of God. Yeah, one needs to be careful not to smuggle in too much. And it is indeed very mysterious. What could be this kind of hybrid, descriptive, evaluative state of finding something valuable or disvaluable? But the intrinsic nature of the physical is, is very much an open question. I think there are good, powerful reasons for thinking that the reality is exhaustively described by the equations of physics. But the intrinsic nature of that stuff, the essence of the physical, the fire in the equations, is controversial. Physics itself is silent.
0: Right, and so I guess here you would describe yourself, given these views, as a a moral realist or an objectivist. Yes, yes.
1: Just to jump in before we get to me couldn't you say that your view is still based on mind dependence? Because at least based on the thing about if somebody else were hooked up to you, that person would appreciate the badness of suffering, but that's still just dependent on that other mind's judgment. Or even if you have a somebody who could mind meld with the whole universe and experience all suffering at once, that would still be the dependence of that mind. That mind is judging it to be a bad thing. So isn't it still mind dependent ultimately?
2: Mind-dependent, but I would say that minds are features of the physical world, and in so obviously one can argue for uh, some kind of dualism, but I'm a monistic physicalist, at least that's my working assumption.
1: I think objective moral value usually the definition is usually that it's not mind-dependent, although maybe it just depends what definition we're using.
2: Yes, I mean it's rather like it's as if something like physicalism is often used as a stylistic variant of materialism, but one can be a non-materialist physicalist and not an idealist. But as I said, minds are objective features of the physical world. I mean, I, at least tentatively, at any rate, take seriously the idea that our experience discloses the intrinsic nature of the physical. This is obviously a controversial opinion. It's associated with someone like Galen Strawson or more likely Phil Goff, but it stretches uh, back via Grover Maxwell and Russell, ultimately to Schopenhauer. A much more conventional view, of course, would be that the intrinsic nature of the physical, the fire in the equations, is non-experiential. And then at some time during the late Precambrian, something happened, some not just organisational but ontological uh, eruption into the fabric of the world, first-person experience.
0: Just to sort of echo what Brian was saying, the traditional objectivist or moral realist view is that the way in which sort of science is the project of interrogating third-person facts, like what is simply true about the person regardless of what we think about it, in some ways I think that traditionally the the moral realist view is that if morality deals with objective facts, then these facts are sort of third-person objectively true and can be sort of discovered through the methods and tools of ethics. Sort of in the same way that someone who might be a mathematical realist would say that one does not invent certain geometric objects, rather one discovers them through the application of mathematical reasoning and logic.
2: Yes, I think it's very tempting to think of first-person facts as having some kind of second-rate ontological status, but as far as I'm concerned, first-person facts are real, and if someone is in agony or experiencing redness, these are objective facts about the physical world.
0: So, Brian, would you just like to jump in with the metaethics behind your own view, which you discussed earlier?
1: Sure. So, on cognitivism versus non-cognitivism, I don't have strong opinions because I think some of the debate is just about how people use language, which is not a metaphysical fundamental issue. It's just sort of like, however, humans happen to use language. But I think the the answer to the cognitivism, non-cognitivism, if I had to say something would be, it's messy, probably. Humans do talk about moral statements the way they talk about other statements, other factual statements. And we use reasoning and we care about maintaining logical consistency among sets of moral statements. So we treat them as regular factual statements in that regard. But there may be also be a sense in which moral statements do strongly express certain emotions. And I think probably most people don't really think about it too much. So it's sort of like people kind of know what they mean when they use moral statements, and they don't have a strong theory of exactly how to describe what they mean. One analogy that you could use is, I think, moral statements are sort of like swear words. They're used to make people more feel more strongly about something or express how strongly you feel about something. And people think that they don't just refer to one's emotions. And even at a subjective level, like so if you say my moral view is that suffering is bad, that feels different than saying I like ice cream because there's sort of a deeper, more kind of spiritual or more like fundamental sensation that comes along with the moral statements that doesn't come along with the I like ice cream statements. I think metaphysically, that doesn't reflect anything fundamental It just means that we feel differently about moral statements and thoughts than about non-moral ones. Subjectively, it feels different. Yeah, so I think most people just kind of feel that difference, and then exactly how you cash out, whether that's cognitive or non-cognitive, is is kind of a semantic dispute. So yeah, my metaphysical position is anti-realism. I think that moral statements are mind-dependent, and they reflect ultimately our, our own preferences, even if they may be like very spiritual and like deep fundamental preferences. I think Occam's razor favors this view because it would add complexity to the world for there to be independent truths. I'm not even sure what that would mean. Based on similar reasoning, I, I reject mathematical truths and anything non, non-physicalist. I think there's moral truths, mathematical truths, and so on can all be thought of as sort of fiction fictional constructions that we make. And we can reason within these fictional universes of ethics and mathematics that we construct using physical thought processes. That's my basic metaphysical stance.
0: Just stepping back to the cognitivism and non-cognitivism issue, I guess I'm specifically interested in yourself. So when you were expressing your own moral view earlier, do you find that it's simply a mixture of expressing your own emotions and also trying to express uh, truth claims? Or given your anti-realism, do you think that you're simply uh, only expressing emotions when you're sort of conveying your moral view?
1: I think very much of myself as an emotivist-like it's very clear to me that what I'm doing when I do ethics is what the emotivist says people are doing. And yeah, since I don't believe in moral truth, it would not make sense for me to be gesturing at moral truths, except maybe insofar as my low-level brain wiring intuitively thinks in those terms.
2: I just uh, add to this in that, although it is possible to imagine, say, something like spectrum inversion, color inversion, some people who like ice cream and some people who hate ice cream one thing it isn't possible to do is imagine a civilization in which an inverted pleasure-pain axis. It seems to just be a basic fact about the world that unbearable agony and and despair is experienced as disvaluable. And even cases that might appear to contradict this, like let's say the masochist In fact, merely confirm the claim because, yeah, I mean, the masochist enjoys the intensely rewarding release of endogenous opioids when the masochist undergoes activities that might otherwise be humiliating or painful.
0: Right. I mean, so, David, it seems you're making a claim about there being a perfect convergence in the space of all possible minds among the pleasure pain axis having the same sort of function. I guess I'm potentially just missing the gap or pointing out the gap between that and I guess your sort of cognitivist objectivism.
2: It just it seems to be built into the nature of, of, let's say, agony or despair itself, that it is disvaluable. It's not, I'm in agony, is this valuable or not? It's not an open question, whereas anything else, however abhorrent you or I might regard it, one can still treat it as an open question and ask, is child abuse or slavery really uh, disvaluable? Whereas in the case of agony, it's uh, sort of built into the nature of the experience itself.
0: I can get behind that. And I think that sometimes when I'm feeling less nihilistic about morality, I am committed to that view. I think just to push back a little bit here, I think in the space of the space of all possible minds, I think I can imagine a mind which has a sort of moral judgment and commitment to the maximization of, of suffering within itself and within the world. And it's simply it, it's perfect in that sense. And, and it's perfect in maximizing suffering for itself in the world. And its judgment and moral epistemology is very brittle, such that it will never change or sort of deviate from this. How would you deal with something like that? Is
2: it possible? I mean, one can certainly imagine, you know, a a culture in which uh, displays of machismo and the ability to cope with great suffering are highly valued and would be conspicuously displayed and this would be fitness enhancing. But nonetheless, it doesn't really challenge the kind of sovereignty of the pleasure-pain axis as as the kind of axis of value and disvalue. So yeah, I would struggle to conceive of some kind of intelligence that values its own despair or agony.
1: From my perspective, I, I agree with what Lucas is saying, depending on how you define things. So like one definition of suffering could be that it part of the definition is desire to avoid it, And so from that perspective, you could say it's not possible for an agent to seek something that it avoids. But I think you could have systems where there are different parts in conflict. So you could have a hedonic assessment system that outputs a signal that this is suffering, but then another system then chooses to favor the suffering. Humans even have something like this when we can override our own suffering. So we might have hedonic systems that say going out in the cold is painful, but then we have other systems or you know other signals that override that avoidance response and cause us to go out in the cold anyway for the sake of something else. And you could imagine the wiring such that it wasn't just enduring pain for some greater good, but the motivational system was actively seeking to cause the hedonic system more experiences of pain. It's just that that would be highly non-adaptive, so we don't see that anywhere in nature.
2: I would agree with what f Yes, very much so.
0: So, okay, so given these views which you guys have expressed and starting to get a better sense of them, Another branch of metaethics here that we might be able to explore how it fits in with your guys' theories, justification theories within metaethics. And these are attempts at understanding moral epistemology and motivation for acting in accordance with morality. So it attempts to answer the question of how are moral judgments to be supported or defended? And if possible, uh, how does one make moral progress? This, again, will include moral epistemology and in terms of AI and value alignment. If one is an anti-realist, as Brian is, or if one is sort of an objectivist, as David is, then this completely changes the way and path forward towards AI alignment and value alignment. If we are a realist as David is, then a sufficiently robust and correct moral epistemology in an AI system could essentially realize the hedonistic imperative as David sees it, where you would just have an optimization process sort of extending out from planet Earth, which was just sort of maximizing for the objectively good hedonic states in all possible sentient beings. And I guess it's a little unclear for me how this fits in with David's theory or how David's theory would be implemented.
2: There is a real problem with any theory of value that makes sovereign either the minimization of suffering or classical utilitarianism. Both Buddhism and negative utilitarianism appear to have this apocalyptic implication that if overriding responsibility is to minimize suffering, then there isn’t the uh, cleanest, quickest, efficient way to eliminate suffering, to sterilize the planet, which is now technically feasible, and that though one can in theory imagine cosmic rescue missions if there is sentience elsewhere, There is, apparently, this not-so-disguised apocalyptic implication. When Buddha says, allegedly or apocryphally, I teach one thing and one thing only, suffering and the relief of suffering or the end of suffering. Yeah, in his day, there was no way to destroy the world. Uh, Today, there is. But much less discussed, indeed, I haven't seen it adequately, or in fact, not discussed at all in the scholarly literature, is that a disguised implication of a classical utilitarian ethic that gives this kind of symmetry to pleasure and pain is that we ought to be launching something like a utilitronium shockwave, where utilitronium is matter and energy optimized for pure bliss, and the shockwave alludes to its velocity of propagation. And although uh, humans perhaps are extremely unlikely, even if and when we're in a position to do so, to launch a utilitronium shockwave, if one imagines a national artificial superintelligence with the kind of utility function of classical utilitarianism, Why wouldn't that superintelligence launch a utilitronium shockwave that maximizes the cosmic abundance of positive value within our cosmological horizon? Personally, you know, I would uh, imagine a future of radiance of intelligent bliss. And I think that is, in fact, sociologically highly likely that post-human civilization will have uh, a hedonic range that very crudely and schematically, as is minus 10 to 0 to plus 10. I can imagine future civilization of, let's say, plus 70 to plus 100 or plus 90 to a plus 100. But from the perspective of classical utilitarianism, and classical utilitarianism is—it's yeah, arguably the dominant, some kind of watered-down version, at least—is the dominant kind of secular ethic in academia and elsewhere. That that kind of civilization is suboptimal. It's—it's it's not moral. One apparently has this obligation to launch this kind of cosmic orgasm, so to speak.
0: Right. So, I mean, I think just pushing a little bit back on the first thing that you said there about the sort of that very negative scenario, which I think people tend to see as an implication of a suffering reducing focused ethic where there can't be any suffering if there's no sentient beings. That to me isn't very plausible because it discounts the possibility of like future well-being. I take the view that we actually do have a moral responsibility to create more happy beings, and I view sort of a symmetry between pain and suffering. I I don't have a particularly suffering-focused ethic where I think that there's an asymmetry where I think we should alleviate suffering prior to maximizing well-being. So I guess, David, maybe you could just unpack a little bit before we jump into these justification theories about whether or not you view there as being an asymmetry between, between suffering and well-being.
2: I think there's an asymmetry. There's this fable of Ursula Le Guin, uh, the ones who, short story, ones who walk away from Omelas. And uh, we're invited to imagine this city of delights, vast city of incredible, wonderful pleasures. But the existence of Omelas, this, uh, this city of delights, depends on the torment and abuse of a single child. And the question is, Would you walk away from omelas? And what does walking away from omelas entail? Now, yeah, personally, I I am someone who would walk away from omelas. But the world does not uh, have an off switch, an off button. And I think if one is, whether a Buddhist or a negative utilitarian or someone who believes in suffering-focused ethics... Rather than to consider these theoretical apocalyptic scenarios, it is more fruitful to work with secular and religious life lovers to phase out the biology of suffering in favor of gradients of intelligent well-being. Because one of the advantages of hedonic recalibration, i.e. ratcheting up hedonic set points is that it doesn't ask people to give up their existing values and preferences with complications. I mean, if you ask me just a convenient, this is a rather trivial example, imagine, you know, 100 people, 100 different football teams, there's simply no way to reconcile conflicting preferences. But what one can do if one ratchets up everyone's hedonic set point is to improve quality of life, and by focusing on uh, ratcheting up hedonic set points, rather than trying to reconcile the irreconcilable, I think this is a potential way forward.
1: So, I guess there are a lot of different points to comment on. I agree with David that negative utilitarians should not aim for world destruction for several reasons. One being that it would make people turn against the cause of suffering reduction, and it's important to have other people not regard that as something to be appalled by. For example, animal rights terrorists plausibly give the animal rights movement a pretty bad name and may set back the cause of animal rights by doing that. And negative utilitarians would almost certainly not succeed anyway, so the most likely outcome is that they hurt their own cause. As far as David's suggestion of improving well-being to reduce disagreements among competing football teams, I think that would potentially help, like, you know, giving people greater wealth and equality in society can reduce some tensions, but I think there will always be some insatiable appetites, especially from moral theories. For example, a classical utilitarian has an insatiable appetite for computational resources. You know, egoists and other moral people may have their own insatiable appetites, We see that in the case of humans trying to acquire wealth beyond what is necessary for their own happiness. So I think there will always be those agents who want to acquire as many resources as possible. You know, the power maximizers will tend to acquire power. So I think we still have additional issues of coordination and social science being used to kind of control the thirst for power among certain segments of society.
0: Sorry. So, and just to get this clear, uh, it sounds like you guys are both sort of committed to different forms of hedonic consequentialism, but you're bringing up preferences and other sorts of things. Is there a room for sort of like ultimate metaphysical value of preferences within your ethics or are ethics simply epistemically and functionally useful indicators of what will often lead to positive hedonics in agents within your guys' ethical theories?
1: So personally, I care to some degree about both preferences and hedonic well-being. Currently, I care somewhat more about hedonic well-being just based on... So from my meta-ethical standpoint, it's ultimately my choice what I want to care about. And I happen to care a lot about hedonic suffering when I imagine that. But from a different standpoint, you can argue that ultimately the golden rule, for example, commits you to caring about whatever it is another organism cares about, whether that's hedonic well-being or some arbitrary wish. For example, a deathbed wish would be a good example of a preference that doesn't have hedonic content to it. Whether you think it's important to keep deathbed wishes even after a person has died, ignoring side effects in terms of later generations realizing that, pre- that promises are not being kept. So I think Even ignoring those side effects, a deathbed wish does have some moral importance based on the idea that if I had a deathbed wish, I would strongly want it to be carried out. If you are acting the way you want others to treat you, then you should care to some degree about other people's deathbed wishes. But since I'm more emotionally compelled by extreme hedonic pain, that's what I give the most weight to.
0: What would your view be of sort of like an AI or machine intelligence, which has a very strong preference, whatever that sort of computational architecture might look like, that's like like a bit be flipped one way rather than another. So it just keeps flipping the bit back and forth. And then you would have sort of like a preference utilitronium shockwave going out in the world. It seems kind of intuitive to me also that we only care about preferences in so far as they and I guess this previous example sort of does this work for me, is that we only care about preferences insofar as that they have hedonic effects. I'll bite the bullet on the deathbed wish thing, and I think that ignoring side effects, like if someone wishes for something and then they die, I don't think that we need to to actually carry it out if we don't think it will maximize hedonic well-being.
1: Mm-hmm. Ignoring the side effects. like There are probably good hedonistic reasons to fulfill deathbed wishes so that current people will not be afraid that their wishes won't be kept also. So, as far as the bit flipping, I think a bit flipping agent does, I think its preference does have moral significance, but I weigh organisms in proportion to the sophistication of their minds. So, I care more about a single human than a single ant, for example, because a human has more sophisticated cognitive machinery. It can do more kinds of, have more kinds of thoughts about its own mental states. When a human has a preference, there's more stuff going on within its brain to kind of back that up, so to speak. So a very simple computer program that has a very simple preference to flip a bit doesn't matter very much to me because there's not a lot of substance behind that preference. You could think of it as an extremely simple mind. What if it's a super intelligence that just wants to keep flipping bits? So in that case, I would give it significant weight because it has so much substance in its mind. It probably has lots of internal processes that are reflecting on its own welfare, so to speak. So yeah, if it's a very sophisticated mind, I would give that significant weight. It might not override the preferences of 7 billion humans combined. I tend to give less than linear weight to larger brains. So as the size of the brain increases, I don't scale the the moral weight of the organism exactly linearly. So that would help to reduce kind of a utility monster conclusion.
0: Given Brian's meta ethics being an anti-realist and sort of viewing himself as an emotivist, I guess the, the reasons or arguments which we could provide, I guess, against this view would only be they don't refer back to any sort of metaphysical objective anything, really. So, David, wouldn't you say that in the end it would just be sort of your personal emotional choice whether or not to find something compelling here?
2: It's to do with the nature of first-person facts. What is it that the equations of physics ultimately describe? And if you think subjectivity, or at least take seriously the conjecture, that subjectivity is the, uh, the essence of the physical The fire in the equations, then, yeah, it is just objectively the case that, that first person agony is disvaluable. But here we get into some very controversial issues. I would just like to go back to one thing Brian was saying about sophistication. I don't think it's plausible that, let's say, a pilot whale is more cognitively sophisticated than humans, but it's very much an open question whether a pilot whale with a substantially larger brain, substantially larger uh, neocortex, substantially larger uh, pain and pleasure centers, that the intensity of experience undergone gone by a pilot whale, let's say, may be greater than that of humans. Therefore, other things being equal, I would say that it's a profoundly aversive states undergone by the whale matter more than a human. It's It's not the level of sophistication or complexity that counts.
0: Do you want to unpack a little bit your view about the hedonics versus the preferences and whether or not preferences have any weight in your view? Only
2: indirectly weight in that, yeah, ultimately, as I said, I think what matters is the pleasure pain axis and preferences only matter insofar as they impact that. But thanks to natural selection, we have countless millions and billions of preferences that are being manufactured all the time as social primates. Countless preferences conflict with each other. There is simply no way to reconcile a lot of them, whereas one can continue to enrich and enhance well-being. So, yeah, sure, other things being equal satisfy people's preferences, but in so many contexts it is logically impossible to do so. From politics, uh, the the Middle East, to interpersonal relationships, to people's desire to be the world famous, this, that, or the other, it is logically impossible to satisfy a, a vast number of preferences.
0: I think it'd be interesting and useful to sort of dive into within justification theories like moral epistemology and ethical motivation. So I think I want to turn to Brian now. And Brian, so I'm curious to know if it's possible, given your view of anti-realism and suffering-focused ethics, whether or not you can make moral progress or what it means to make moral progress. How does one navigate the realm of moral issues in your view, given the meta-ethics that you hold? And why ought I or others or why not I or others to follow uh, your ethics or not?
1: Moral progress, I think, can be thought of as many people have a desire to improve their own moral views using standards of improvement that they choose. So, for example, a common standard would be, I think, that the moral views that I will hold after learning more, I will generally now kind of defer to those views as the better ones. There might be some exceptions, especially if you get too much into some subject area that distorts your thinking relative to the way it was before. But basically, you can think of brain state changes as either being approved of or not approved of by the current state. And so moral progress would consist of doing updates to your brain that you approve of, sort of like installing updates to a computer that you choose to install. That's what moral progress would be. Basically, you designate which, which changes do I want to happen. And then if those happen according to the rules, then it's out of progress relative to what my current state thought. You can have failures of goal preservation. The example that Eliezer Yudkowsky gives is if you give Gandhi a pill that would make him want to kill people, he should not take it because that would change his goals in a way that his current goals don't approve of. So that would be moral anti-progress relative to Gandhi's current goals. So yeah, that's, that's how I would think of it. And different people have different preferences about how much you can call preference idealization. Preference idealization is the idea of imagining what preferences you would hold if you knew more, were smarter, had more experiences, and so on. And so different people can want different amounts of preference idealization. There are some people who say, I have almost no idea what what I currently value, and I want to defer that to an artificial intelligence to help me figure that out. In my case... It's very clear to me that extreme suffering is what I want to continue to value, and if I changed from that stance, that would be a failure of goal preservation relative to my current values. But there are still questions on which I do have significant uncertainty in the sense that I would defer to my future self. For example, the question of how to weigh different brain complexities against each other is something where I still have significant uncertainty. The question of how much weight to give to what's called higher order theory in consciousness versus first order theories. Basically, how much you think that high level thoughts are an important component of what consciousness is. That's an issue where I have significant moral uncertainty. So there are issues where I want to learn more, think more about it, have more other people think about it before I make up my mind fully on, on what I think about that. So then why should you hold my moral view? The real answer is because I want you to. And uh, I'll try to come up with arguments to uh, make it sound more convincing to you.
2: I find subjectivism troubling. You know, I support my football team is Manchester United, and I wouldn't take a pill that induced me to support Manchester City because that would subvert my values in some sense. But nonetheless, ultimately... Support for Manchester United is arbitrary. It is a support for the reduction of of suffering, merely a, a, akin to a one support, let's say, of Manchester United.
1: I, I think metaphysically they're the same. It feels very different. Like there's more of a spiritual kind of like your whole being is behind reduction of suffering in the way that's not true for football teams. But ultimately, there's no no metaphysical difference.
2: Intentional objects ultimately are arbitrary, that uh, natural selection has skewed us so to find certain uh, intentional objects. Sorry, intentional objects. This is philosophy jargon for the things we care about, uh, whether uh, sort of football or politics or, or anything. But nonetheless, it's unlike these arbitrary intentional objects. It just seems to be built into the nature of agony or despair that they are disvaluable. It's simply not possible to instantiate such states and find it an open question whether they're disvaluable or not.
1: I don't know if we want to debate now, but I I think it is possible. I mean, we already have examples of you know, one organism who finds the suffering of another organism to be positively valuable.
2: But they are not mirror-touch synesthetes. Uh, they do not accurately perceive what is going on. And insofar as one does either a sort of mirror-touch synesthete or can do the equivalent of a Vulcan mind meld or something like that, one is not going to perceive the disvaluable as valuable. It's an epistemological limitation
1: but my objection to that is it depends how you hook up the wires between the two minds like if you hook up one person's suffering to another person's suffering then the second person will say it's also bad but if you hook up one person's suffering neurons to another person's pleasure neurons then the second person will say it's good so it just depends how you hook up the wires
2: it's uh, it's not it's not all or nothing but uh, but if one is let's say a mirror touch the Today, you know, and someone's, you know, they, they, they stub their toe and you you have an experience of pain. It's simply not possible to take pleasure in their stubbing their toe. I think if one does have this notional God's eye perspective, an impartial view from nowhere, that one will act accordingly.
1: And I disagree with that because I think you can always imagine just reversing the motivational wires, so to speak. Just flip the wire that says this is bad, flip it to saying this is good in terms of the uh, the agent's motivation.
2: Right. Yes, I'm just trying to visualize what this would entail.
1: So even in the in the synesthete example, just imagine a brain where the same stimulus, currently in, in normal humans, the stimulus triggers negative emotional responses. Just have the, the neurons hook up to the positive emotional responses instead.
2: But once again, wouldn't this be an epistemological limitation? rather than some deep metaphysical truth about the world?
1: Well, it depends how you define epistemology, but you could be like a psychopath where you correctly predict another organism's behavior, but you don't care. So you can have a difference between beliefs and motivations. And so the beliefs could correctly recognize the suffering, but the motivations could have the wires flipped such that there's motivation to cause more of the suffering.
2: It's just that we, I would say that uh, the psychopath has an epistemological limitation. In that the psychopath does not adequately take into account other perspectives. In that sense, it, the psychopath lacks an adequate theory of mind. The psychopath is privileging one particular here and now over other here and nows, which is not metaphysically sustainable.
1: So it might be a definitional dispute, like whether you consider having proper motivation to be part of epistemological accuracy or not. It seems that you're saying if you're not properly motivated to reduce it, you don't have proper epistemological access to it by definition.
2: Yes, I mean, I, I, one has to be extremely careful with using this term by definition. But uh, yes, I would say that we are all to some degree sociopathic. One is quasi-sociopathic to one's future self, for example, insofar as one, let's say, doesn't prudently save but squanders money, you know, money and stuff. But we are far more psychopathic towards other sentient beings because one is failing to fully to take into account their perspective. It is, is, is this hardwired epistemological limitation. But one thing I would very much uh, agree with Brian on is, yeah, kind of moral uncertainty and being prepared to uh, urge reflection and take into account other perspectives and allow for the possibility one can be wrong. It's not always possible to have the luxury of moral reflection uncertainty. You know, if a kid is drowning, hopefully one uh, dashes into the water to save the kid. Is this the right thing to do? Well, what happens if the kid as this is a real story, happens to be a toddler who grows up to be Adolf Hitler and plunges the world into war. One doesn't know the long-term consequences of one's action, but wherever possible, yes, one urges uh, reflection and caution in the context of a discussion or a debate. One well, isn't qualifying one's uncertainty, uh, agnosticism, carefully, but in a more deliberative context, perhaps well, one should certainly do so.
0: Let's just bring it a little bit back to the ethical epistemology behind and ethical motivation behind your hedonistic imperative, given your objectivism. And I guess here it would also be interesting to know if you could also explore key metaphysical uncertainties and physical uncertainties and and, and what more and how we might go about learning more about the universe such that your view would be further informed
2: you know, happy to launch into a long spiel about my views. One thing I think it really is worth stressing is that one doesn't need to buy into any form of utilitarianism or suffering-focused ethics to believe that we can and should phase out the biology of involuntary suffering. It's uh, common to all manner of secular and religious views that we should be, other things being equal, minimizing suffering, reducing unnecessary suffering. And this is one thing that technology, particularly biotechnology, allows us to do. And support for something like you know, universal access to pre-implantation genetic screening, phasing out factory farming and shutting slaughterhouses, going on to essentially uh, yeah, reprogram the biosphere. It, it doesn't involve a commitment to some particular one specific ethical or meta-ethical view. I mean, you know, for something like uh, pain-free surgery and anesthesia, you don't need to sign up for it to recognize it's a good thing. And I suppose, yeah, my interest is very much in building bridges with other ethical traditions. So, yeah, I am happy to uh, go into some of my own uh, personal views, but I just don't want to tie this idea that we can use biotech to get rid of suffering into anything uh, quirky or idiosyncratic to me. And I have a fair number of idiosyncratic views.
0: It would be interesting if you could explain whether or not you think that superintelligences or AGI will necessarily converge on what you view to be. Objective morality, or if that is ultimately down to AI researchers to be very mindful of implementing.
2: I think there's a, a real risk here when one that one is starts speaking as though post-human superintelligence is going to end up endorsing a, a version of one's own views and values, which a priori is, uh, if one thinks about it, is extremely unlikely but i think too one needs to to ask yeah uh, when one is talking about posthuman superintelligence if uh posthuman superintelligence is biological descendants i think posthuman superintelligence will have a recognizable descendant of the pleasure pain axis i think it will be ratcheted up so that say experience below hedonic zero is impossible but in that sense i do see a convergence by contrast, if one has a conception of posthuman superintelligence such that post-human superintelligence may not be sentient, may not be uh, experiential at all, then there is no guarantee that such a, a regime would be friendly to anything uh, recognizably human in its values.
0: The crux here. There are different ways of doing value alignment, and one such way is descriptively through a superintelligence being able to gain enough uh, information about the set of all values that human beings have and, say, aligning to to those or to some fraction of those or to some idealized version of those through something like uh, coherent extrapolated volition. Another one is where we embed a moral epistemology within the machine system, and so that the machine becomes an ethical reasoner, almost a a moral philosopher in its own right, and it seems that given your objectivist ethics, that with that sort of moral epistemology, it would be able to converge on what is true. Do these different paths forward make sense to you and or it also seems that the role of mind melding seems to be very crucial and, and, and core to the realization of the correct ethics in your view? With some
2: people, their heart sinks when the topic of machine consciousness crops up because they know that there's going to be a long, inconclusive philosophical discussion and a shortage of any real empirical tests. But... Uh, Yeah, I will just uh, state, I do not think a classical digital computer is capable of phenomenal binding, therefore it will not understand the nature of consciousness or pleasure and pain, and I see the notion of value and disvalue as bound up with the pleasure-pain axis. And so in that sense, I think what we're calling machine artificial general intelligence, in one sense, it's invincibly ignorant. I know a lot of people would disagree with this description, but if you think humans, or at least some humans, spend a lot of their time thinking about, talking about, exploring consciousness in all its varieties, in some cases uh, exploring psychedelia, what are we doing? There are a vast range of cognitive domains that are completely cognitively inaccessible to digital computers.
0: Putting aside the issue of, of machine consciousness, it seems that being able to sort of first-person access hedonic states provides an extremely foundational and core motivational, or at least epistemological role in, in your ethics, David. Yes. I mean,
2: part of intelligence involves being able to distinguish the important from the trivial which ultimately, as far as I can see, boils down to the pleasure-pain axis. And digital zombies have no conception of what is important or what is trivial, I would say.
1: Why would that be if a a true zombie in the David Chalmers sense is functionally isomorphic to a human? And so presumably that zombie would properly care about suffering because all of its functional behavior is the same. So do you think in the real world, digital computers can't do the the same sort of functional computation that a human brain does?
2: None of us have the slightest idea how one would set about programming a computer to do the kinds of things that humans are doing when they talk about and discuss consciousness, when when they take uh, uh, psychedelics or discuss the nature of the self. I'm not saying workarounds are impossible. I just don't think they're spontaneously going to happen.
1: I agree. Just like building intelligence itself, it requires a lot of engineering to create those features of human-like psychology.
0: I don't see why it would be physically or technically impossible to instantiate an emulation of that architecture or an architecture that's basically identical to it in a machine system. I don't understand why computer architecture or computer substrate is really so different from biological architecture or substrate such that it's impossible for this case.
2: It's whether one feels the force of the binding problem or not. In that, you know, the example one can give, you know, imagine the population of the USA, skull bound minds, imagine them implementing any kind of computation you like, uh, ultra fast electromagnetic signaling far faster than electrochemical signaling in the CNS as normally conceived. Nonetheless, short of a breakdown of monistic physicalism, there is simply no way that the population of the USA is spontaneously going to become a subject of experience, to, to apprehend perceptual objects. Essentially, all you have is a, a micro-experiential zombie. And the question is, why are 86% billion-odd membrane-bound, supposedly classical neurons any different? Why aren't we uh, micro-experiential zombies? One way to appreciate, I think, the force, uh, the adaptive role of phenomenal binding is to look at syndromes where binding even partially breaks down, such as simultaneous nausea, where the subject can only see one thing at once, or motion blindness or echinotopsia, where one can't apprehend motion, or severe forms of schizophrenia, where there is no longer any unitary self. Somehow, right now, you instantiate a unitary world simulation populated by multiple uh, phenomenally bound dynamical objects, and this is tremendously fitness-enhancing, and the question is, how can a bunch of membrane-bound nerve cells, a pack of neurons, carry off what is classically impossible? I mean, one can uh, probe the CNS with temporally coarse-grained uh, neuroscans, and one can discern individual feature processors, edge detectors, motion detectors, color detectors. But apparently, there are no uh, perceptual objects uh, there. How is it that right now, that your mind-brain is capable of running this egocentric world simulation in almost real time? It's an astonishing computational feat. I argue for a version of quantum mind, but one needn't buy into this to recognize that it's a profound and unsolved problem. I mean, why aren't we like the population of the USA?
0: Just to bring this back to the AI alignment problem and putting aside issues in phenomenal binding and, and consciousness for a moment, putting aside also the conception that superintelligence is likely to be some sort of biological instantiation. If we imagine sort of the more uh, AI safety uh, mainstream approach, the sort of mirrory idea of there being simply a, a machine superintelligence, it seems that in your view, David, and I think here this elucidates a lot of the interdependencies and difficulties where one's meta ethical views are intertwined in the end with what is true about consciousness and computation. It seems that in your view, it's close to or almost maybe uh, perhaps impossible to actually do AI alignment or value alignment on machine superintelligence.
2: It is possible to do value alignment, but I think the real worry is that if you take the the, the Miri scenario uh, seriously, this sort of recursively self improving software that will somehow, you'll get sort of this runaway intelligence. There's no knowing where, where it may lead. But MIRI, as far as I know, have a very different conception of the nature of consciousness and value. I'm not aware that they tackle the binding problem. I just don't see that subjects of experience, unitary subjects of experience with values or a pleasure-pain axis are spontaneously going to emerge from software. It seems to involve some form of, of strong emergence.
0: Right, and I guess so just to sort of tie this back and and ground it a bit, it it seems that the portion of your meta-ethics, which is going to be informed by empirical facts about consciousness and minds in general, is sort of the view in there that without access to the phenomenal pleasure-pain access— which you view to have sort of like an intrinsic goodness or wrongness to it because it is sort of foundationally and physically and objectively the pleasure-pain axis of the universe, the heat and the spark in the equation, I guess as you say, that without access to that, then ultimately one will go awry in one's ethics if one does not have access to phenomenal hedonic states, given that that's the core of value.
2: Yeah, in theory, an intelligent digital computer stroke robot could impartially pave the cosmos with either dolorium or hedonium without actually understanding the implications of what it was doing. Hedonium being, or utilitronium, matter and energy optimized for pure bliss, and dolorium being uh, matter and energy optimized, for want of a better word, for pure uh, misery or, or despair. That the system in question would not understand the implications of what it was doing. And that I know a lot of people do think that, well, sooner or later, classical digital computers are machines going to kind of wake up. But I don't think it's going to happen. Or rather, we're not talking about uh, hypothetical quantum computers next century and beyond, but simply an extension of today's programmable digital computers. I think they're zombies and will
0: remain zombies. So fully autonomous agents, which are very free and and super intelligent in relation to us, will, in your view, require a fundamental access to that which is valuable, which is uh, phenomenal states, which is the phenomenal pleasure-pain access. And without that, it's missing a sort of key epistemological ingredient, and so it will fail in value alignment.
2: Yes, yeah, yeah. It just simply does not understand the nature of the world. It's rather like claiming that a system is intelligent but doesn't understand the second law of thermodynamics. It's not a a full-spectrum superintelligence.
0: I guess my open question there would be then whether or not it would be possible to not have access to fundamental hedonic states but still be uh, something of a bodhisattva with a robust moral epistemology that was sort of heading in the right direction or what might be objective.
2: The system in question would not understand the implications of what it was doing.
0: Right. It wouldn't understand the implications, but if it got set off in that direction and it was simply achieving the goal, then I think in some cases we might call that value aligned.
2: Yes, one can imagine. Sorry, Brian, they do uh, intervene when you're really ready. But uh, yeah, one could imagine, for example, being skeptical of the possibility of interstellar travel for biological humans, but uh, programming systems to go out across the cosmos, or at least within our cosmological horizons, and convert matter and energy into pure bliss. I mean, one needn't assume that this will apply to our little bubble of civilization. But what should we do about inert matter and energy elsewhere in the galaxy? One can either leave it as it is, or if one is, let's say, a classical utilitarian, one could convert it into pure bliss. And yeah, one can send out probes, one could restructure, reprogram matter and energy in that way. That would be a kind of compromise uh, solution in one sense keep complexity within our little tiny bubble of uh, civilization, but convert the rest of the accessible cosmos into pure bliss. And so though that technically would not, strictly speaking, maximize the abundance of positive value in our Hubble volume, nonetheless, it could become extraordinarily close to it from a classical utilitarian perspective.
1: Brian, do you have anything to add here? Well, I disagree on many, many points. I think digital computation is capable of functionally similar enough processing as the brain does. But even if that weren't the case, a a paperclip maximizer with a very different brain architecture would still have a very sophisticated model of human emotions and its motivations wouldn't be hooked up to those emotions, but it would understand for all other senses of the word understand human pleasure and pain. So yeah, I see it more as a, a challenge of hooking up the motivation properly. So as far as my thoughts on alignment in general, based on my metaethics, I tend to agree with the, the default approach, like the Miri approach, which is unsurprising because Miri is also anti-realist on metaethics. So that approach sees the task as taking human values and somehow translating them into the AI. And so that could be in a variety of different ways. Learning human values implicitly from certain examples, or with some combination of maybe top down programming of certain ethical axioms. I mean, that that gets into exactly how you do alignment, and there are lots of approaches to that. But the basic idea that you need to specifically replicate the complexity of human values in machines and the complexity of the way humans reason, and it won't be there by default in any way, is shared between my opinion and that of the mainstream AI alignment approach.
0: So do you take a view then similar to that of uh, coherent extrapolated volition?
1: In case anybody doesn't know, coherent extrapolated volition is Eliezer Yudkowsky's idea of giving the AI the kind of a meta, you could call it a meta ethics. It's kind of a meta rule for learning values to take humanity and think about what humanity would want if it was smarter, new, had more kind of positive interactions with each other, and thought faster, and then try to identify points of convergence among the values of different idealized humans. So in terms of theoretical things to aim for, I think CEV is one reasonable target for reasons of cooperation among other humans. I mean, if I controlled the world, I would prefer to have the AI implement my own values rather than humanity's values because I care more about my values. Some human values are fairly abhorrent to me and others seem at least unimportant to me. But in terms of getting everybody together to not fight endlessly over the outcome of AI, in this kind of theoretical scenario, CEV would be a reasonable target to strive for. But in practice, I think that's unrealistic. Like A pure CEV is unrealistic because the world does not listen to moral philosophers to any significant degree. In practice, things are determined by politics, economic power, technological and military power, and forces like that. Those determine most of what happens in the world. I think we might see approximations to CEV that are much more crude. Like you could say that democracy is sort of an approximation to CEV in the sense that different people with different values, at least in theory, you know, discuss their differences and then come up with a compromise outcome. So something like democracy, maybe power-weighted democracy in which more powerful actors have more influence, will be what, what ends up happening. And so the philosopher's dream of idealizing values to perfection is unfortunately not going to happen, but we can push in directions that are slightly more reflective. We can push society towards slightly more reflection, towards slightly more cooperation and things like that.
2: A couple of points there. First, what to use an example we touched on before, what would be coherent extrapolated volition for all the world's football supporters? Essentially, there's simply no way to reconcile all their preferences. One may say that if they were fully informed, football supporters wouldn't waste their time passionately supporting one team or another. But essentially, I'm not sure that that the notion of coherent extrapolated volition there would make sense. And of course, there are more serious issues than football. But the second thing, when it comes to the nature of value, regardless of one's metaphysical stance on whether one's a realist or an anti-realist about value, I think it is possible by biotechnology to create states that are empirically, subjectively far more valuable than anything that is physiologically feasible today. I mean, take Prince Mishkin in *The The Idiot like Dostoevsky was a temporal lobe epileptic, and he said, I would give my whole life for this one instant. Essentially, there are states of consciousness that are empirically super valuable. And rather than attempting to reconcile irreconcilable preferences, I think you could say that we should be, you know, insofar as we aspire to long-term, full-spectrum superintelligence, perhaps we should be aiming to create these super-valuable states. I'm not sure whether it's really morally obligatory. As I said, my own focus is on yeah, the overriding importance of phasing out suffering. But for someone who does give some weight or equal weight to positive experiences, positively valuable experiences, That there is a vast range of valuable experience that is completely inaccessible to humans that could be uh, engineered via biotechnology.
0: A core difference here is going to be that given Brian's view of anti-realism, AI alignment or value alignment would in the end be left to those powers which he described in order to resolve irreconcilable preferences. That is if human preferences don't converge strongly enough after enough time and information that there are no longer irreconcilable preferences, which I guess I would suppose is probably wrong.
1: Which which is wrong?
0: That it would be wrong that human beings' preferences would converge strongly enough that there would no longer be irreconcilable preferences after coherent extrapolated volition.
1: Okay, I agree.
0: So I'm saying that, so in the end, value alignment would be left up to economic forces, military forces, other forces to determine what comes out of value alignment. But, but, but in David's view, it would simply be down to if we could get the epistemology right, and we could know enough about value and the pleasure-pain axis and, and the metaphysical status of phenomenal states, that that would be value alignment, would be to capitalize on that. I didn't mean to interrupt you, Ryan. Do you want to jump in there?
1: I was going to say the same thing you did that I agree with David that there would be irreconcilable differences. And in fact, many different parameters of the CEV algorithm would probably affect the outcome. One example that you could give is that people tend to crystallize their moral values as they age. And so you could imagine somebody who was presented with utilitarianism as a young person would be more inclined toward that. Whereas maybe if that person had been presented with deontology as a young person, the person would favor deontology as he got older. And so depending on seemingly arbitrary factors, such as the order in which you are presented with moral views or what else is going on in your life at the time that you confront a given moral view or a hundred other inputs, the output could be sensitive to that. And so CEV is really a, a class of algorithms. Depending on how you tune the parameters, you could get substantially different outcomes. So yeah, CEV is, is an improvement, even if there's no obvious unique target. And as I said, in practice, we won't even get pure CEV, but we'll get some kind of very rough, power-weighted approximation, similar to our present world of democracy and competition among various interest groups for control.
0: Just to sort of explain how I'm feeling so far, I mean, Brian, I'm very sympathetic to your view, but I'm also very sympathetic to David's view, and I kind of hover somewhere in between. I like this point that David made where he quoted Russell Something along the lines that one one ought to be careful when discussing ethical metaphysics, that one is not simply trying to make one's own views and preferences objective
2: yeah I mean this is, this is it One one is talking about well, just just in general when one speaks about the nature of, for example, posthuman superintelligence, think think of the way today that the very nature and notion of of intelligence is a contested term. Simply sticking the word "super" in front of it is just how illuminating is it? When uh, I read you know, someone's account of superintelligence, I'm really reading an account of, of what kind of, of person they are, their intellect and their values. I'm sure, you know, when I discuss you know the nature of full-spectrum superintelligence, a, a listener can see what I can't, the extent to which I'm simply uh, articulating my
0: own limitations. I guess for me here, to get all my partialities out of the way, I kind of hope that objectivism is true because I think that it makes value alignment way less messy. And in the end, we could have something actually good and beautiful, which I don't know, is some sort of preference that I have that might be uh, objective or not, or just simply wrong or confused. But the descriptive picture that I think Brian is committed to, which gives rise to this sort of miry and and tomastic form of anti-realism. Is just sort of one where in the beginning there was like entropy and noise and many generations of stars fusing atoms into heavier elements. And one day one of these disks turned into a planet and a sun shone some light on a planet and the planet began to produce people. And there's an optimization process there in the end, which simply seems to be ultimately driven by entropy. And morality seems to simply be a part of this optimization process, which just kind of works to facilitate and mediate the relations between angry mean primates uh, like ourselves.
1: I would point out there's also a lot of spandrel to morality, in my opinion, especially these days now that we're not heavily optimized by biological pressures. So all of this conversation that we're having right now is a spandrel in the sense that it's just an outgrowth of certain abilities that we evolved, but it's not at all adaptive in any direct sense.
0: Right. And and so in this view, it really just seems like morality and suffering and all of this is just a byproduct of the screaming entropy and noise of whatever led to this universe. But at the same time, this sort of objective process, and I think this is the part that people who are committed to sort of merely anti-realism and sort of, I guess, just relativism and skepticism about ethics in general, maybe are not tapping into enough. But at the same time, this objectivity is producing a, a very real and objective, phenomenal self and story, which is caught up in suffering, where suffering is really, really suffering and it really sucks to suffer. And it all seems sort of at face value true in that moment throughout the suffering that this is real. The suffering is real. The suffering is bad. It's pretty horrible. Or this bliss is something that I would never give up. Or if the rest of the universe were this bliss, that would just be the most amazing thing ever. That in this sort of very subjective, phenomenal, like just experiential thing that the universe produces, this subjective, phenomenal story and narrative that we live, it seems there's just this huge tension between that and I think the anti-realism, the just the, the clear suffering of suffering and as just being a human being.
1: I'm not sure if there's a tension because the anti-realist agrees that humans experience suffering as meaningful and they experience it as the most important thing imaginable. And so there's not really a tension. And you can explore why humans quest for objectivity. There seems to be certain glow that attaches to things by saying that they're objectively moral. But that's just sort of a weird quirk of human brains. I would say that ultimately, we can choose to care about what we care about, whether it's objective or not. I often say, even if objective truth exists, I don't necessarily care what it says, because I care about what I care about. And it it could turn out that objective truth orders you to torture squirrels. If it does, then I'm not going to follow the objective truth. On reflection, I'm not unsatisfied at all with anti-realism, because what more could you want than what you want?
0: (laughs) Yeah, David, feel free to jump in if you'd like.
2: Well, no, it's just uh, there's this uh, temptation to, to, to oscillate between two senses of the word subjective, subjective and neither true nor false, and subjective in the sense of first person experience. My being in agony or your being in agony or someone being in despair is, as I said, as much an objective property of reality as the rest mass of the electron. I mean, what we can be doing is working in such ways as to increase, and in theory, to maximize the amount of subjective value in the world, regardless of whether or not one believes that this has any transcendent significance. With the proviso here that there is a a risk that if one aims, strictly speaking, to maximize subjective value, that one gets the utilitronium shockwave. But if one is, as I said, what I personally uh, advocate as aiming for a civilization of super intelligent bliss, one is not asking people to give up their core values and preferences unless one of those core values and preferences is to keep hedonic set points unchanged. That's not very intellectually satisfying, but it's, you know, th- this idea, if one is working towards some kind of consensus, and compromise.
0: I think now I want to get into a bit more just about ethical uncertainty and specifically with regards to meta uncertainty. I think that just given the kinds of people that we are, that even if we disagree about realism versus anti-realism or ascribe different probabilities to each view, we might pretty strongly converge on how we ought to do value alignment given our kinds of moral considerations that we have. So I'm just curious to explore a little bit more about what you guys are are most uncertain about, what it would take to change your mind, what sort of new information you would be looking for that might challenge or make you revise your meta-ethical view, and how we might want to proceed with AI alignment given our meta-ethical uncertainty.
1: Can you do those one by one?
0: Yeah, for sure. If I can remember uh, everything I just said. So (laughs) first to start off, what are you guys most uncertain about within your metaethical theories?
1: I'm not very uncertain metaethically. I can't actually think of what would convince me to change my metaethics. Because as I said, even if it turned out that metaphysically, moral truth was a thing out there in some way, whatever that would mean. I wouldn't care about it except for like instrumental reasons. For example, if it was a god, then you'd have to instrumentally care about god punishing you or something. But in terms of what I actually care about, it would be not connected to moral truth. So yeah, it would have to be some sort of revision of the way I conceive of my own values. And so I'm not sure what that would look like to be meta-ethically uncertain.
0: So so there's a branch of meta which tries to tackle this issue of meta commitment. A moral commitment to meta-ethical views. So if some sort of meta-ethical thing is true, why ought I to follow what is meta-ethically true? In your view, Brian, is just simply, why ought you not to follow, or why ought it not matter for you to follow what is, what is meta-ethically true if there ends up being objective moral facts?
1: The squirrel example is a good illustration. If ethics turned out to be, you must torture as many squirrels as possible, then screw uh, moral truth. I don't see what this abstract metaphysical thing has to do with what I care about myself. So basically, my ethics comes from, you know, empathy, seeing others in pain, wanting that to stop. And unless moral truth somehow gives insight about that, like maybe moral truths is somehow based on that kind of empathy in a sophisticated way, then it would be sort of like another person giving me thoughts on morality. But the metaphysical nature of it would be irrelevant. It would only be useful insofar as it would appeal to my own emotions and sense of what morality should be for me.
2: If I might interject, undercutting my position and negative utilitarianism and suffering focused ethics, I think it quite likely that posthuman superintelligence or advanced civilization with a hedonic range, ratcheted right up, you know, to seventy to hundred or something like that, would look back on anyone articulating the kind of view that I am, that anyone who believes in suffering-focused ethics does, and seeing it as some kind of depressive psychosis. One intuitively assumes that our successors will be wiser than we are, and perhaps, well, they will be in many ways. And yet in another sense, I think we should be uh, aspiring to ignorance that once we have done absolutely everything in our power to minimize, mitigate, abolish and prevent suffering, I think we should forget it even existed. I hope that eventually any experience below hedonic zero will be literally inconceivable.
0: And so, just to jump to you here, David, what are your views about what you are most metaethically uncertain about?
2: Is this this worry that what one is doing, however much one is pronouncing about the nature of reality or the future of intelligence, life in the universe, and so on, what one is really doing is some kind of disguised autobiography? And given that quite a number of people, sadly, pain and suffering have loomed larger in my life than pleasure. Turning this into a deep metaphysical truth about the universe. As I said this potentially undercuts my view. I mean, I, as I said, I think there are arguments against the symmetry view that suffering is self intimatingly bad, where there is nothing self intimatingly bad about being an in insentient system or a system that is merely content. But nonetheless, yeah, I take seriously the possibility that all I'm doing is expressing obliquely my own limitations of perspective.
0: Given these uncertainties and the difficulty and and expected impact of AI alignment, if if we're again committing ourselves to this miry view of an intelligence explosion with quickly recursive self-improving AI systems, how would you both, if you were the king of AI strategy How would you go about allocating your your meta ethics and how would you go about working on the AI alignment problem and thinking about the strategy, given your uncertainties and your views?
1: So I should mention that my most probable scenario for AI is a slow takeoff in which lots of components of intelligence emerge piece by piece rather than a localized intelligence explosion. As far as the intelligence, like if it were a hard takeoff, localized intelligence explosion, then yeah, I think the diversity of approaches that people are considering is what I would do as well. It seems to me you have to somehow learn values because in the same way that we've discovered that teaching machines by learning is more powerful than teaching them by hard-coding rules, you probably have to mostly learn values as well, although there might be hard-coding mixed in. So yeah, I would just pursue a variety of approaches and the way that the current community is doing. And I support the fact that there is also a diversity of short-term versus long-term focus. Some people are working on concrete problems. Others are focusing on issues like decision theory and logical uncertainty and so on, because I think that some of those foundational issues will be very important. For example, decision theory could make a huge difference to the AI's effectiveness, as well as issues of what happens in conflict situations. And so, yeah, I think a diversity of approaches is valuable. I don't have specific advice on where I would recommend tweaking current approaches. I guess I sort of expect that the concrete problems kind of work will mostly be done automatically by industry because those are the kinds of problems that you need to make AI work at all. So if anything, I might invest more in the kind of long-term approaches that practical applications are likely to ignore or at least put off until later.
2: Yes, because of my background assumptions are different, it's hard for me to deal with your question. But if one believes that subjects of experience that could suffer could simply emerge at different levels of abstraction, I don't really know how to tackle this because this strikes me as a form of strong emergence. And one of the reasons why philosophers don't like strong emergence is that essentially all bets are off. Yeah, you just sort of uh, imagine if life hadn't been reducible to molecular biology and hence ultimately to quantum chemistry and physics. So yeah, I'm not probably the best person to answer your question. I think, yeah, in terms of real moral focus, I would like to see essentially the molecular signature of unpleasant experience identified. And essentially, you're just making it completely off limits and and biologically impossible for any uh, sentient being to suffer. But if one also believes that there are or could be subjects of experience that somehow emerge in classical digital computers, then, uh, yeah, I'm floundering. My theory of uh, mind and, and reality would be wrong.
0: I think touching on the paper that Kai Sotala had written on suffering risks, I think that a lot of different value systems would also converge with you on your view, David. So whether or not we take the view of realism or anti-realism, I think that most people would agree with you. I think the issue comes about with, again, preference conflicts where some people, like, I think even this might be a widespread view in Catholicism where, like, you view suffering as really important. Because it teaches you things and/or it has some sort of special metaphysical significance with relation to God. Within the anti-realism view, uh, with Brian's view, I, I, I would find it very just dealing with varying preferences on whether or not we should be able to suffer is, is something I kind of just don't want to deal with.
1: Yeah, that illustrates what I was saying about I prefer my values over the collective values of humanity. That's one example.
2: I don't think it would be disputed that sometimes suffering can teach lessons. The, the question is, are there any lessons that couldn't be functionally replaced by something else? This idea that we can just offload the nasty side of life onto software. I in the case of pain, nociception, one knows that, uh, yes, uh, silicon robot software systems can be programmed or trained up to avoid noxious stimuli without the nasty raw feels. Should we be doing the same thing for organic biological robots too? When it comes to this, the question of, of suffering, one can have quite fierce and lively disputes with someone who says that yeah, they want to retain the capacity to suffer. This is very different from involuntary suffering, and I think that quite often someone will concede that no, they wouldn't want to force another sentient being to, to suffer against their will. It, sh- it should be a matter of choice.
0: To tie this all into AI alignment again, really the, the point of this conversation is that, again, we're doing ethics on a deadline. If you survey the top 100 AI safety researchers or AI researchers in the world, you'll see that they give a probability distribution of the likelihood of human-level artificial intelligence with about a 50% probability at 2050. And this, many suspect, will have enormous implications for Earth-originating intelligent life and our uh, cosmic endowment So our normative and descriptive and applied ethical practices that we engage with are all embodiments and consequential to the sorts of metaethical views which we hold, which may not even be explicit. I think many people don't really think about metaethics very much. I think that many uh, AI researchers probably don't think about metaethics very much. But the end towards which AI will be aimed will largely be a consequence of some aggregate of metaethical views and assumptions or the metaethical views and assumptions of a select few. So I guess, uh, Brian and David, just to tie this all together, what do you guys view as as really the practicality of metaethics in general and in terms of technology and, and AI alignment?
1: As far as what you said about metaethics determining the, the outcome, I would say maybe the implicit metaethics will determine the outcome. But I think, as we discussed before, 90-some percent of the outcome will be determined by ordinary economic and political forces. You know, Most people in politics in general don't think about metaethics explicitly, but they still engage in the process and have a big impact on the outcome. I think the same will be true in AI alignment. People will push for things they want to push for, and that'll mostly determine what happens. It's possible that metaethics could inspire people to be more cooperative depending on how it's framed. So you know, CEV as a kind of practical metaethics could potentially inspire cooperation if it's seen as an ideal to work towards, although the extent to which it can actually be achieved is questionable. Sometimes you might have a naive view where a moral realist assumes that a superintelligent AI would necessarily converge to the moral truth, or at least a superintelligent AI could identify the moral truth, and then maybe all you need to do is program the AI to care about the moral truth once it discovers it. Those particular naive approaches, I think, would produce wrong outcomes because there would be no moral truth to be found. And so I think it's important to be wary of that assumption that a superintelligence will figure it out on its own, and we don't need to do the hard work of loading complex human values ourselves but it seems like the current AI alignment community largely recognizes that. They recognize that there's a lot of hard work in loading values, and it won't just happen automatically.
2: In terms of metaethics, consider the nature of, of pain-free surgery, surgical anesthesia. When it was first introduced in the mid-19th century, it was for about 15 years controversial. There were powerful voices that spoke against it, but nonetheless, very rapidly, a a consensus emerged, and we all now almost all take it for granted for major surgery, anesthesia. It didn't require a consensus on the nature of value and metaethics. It's just the obvious, given our nature. And clearly, I would hope that eventually something similar will happen, not just for physical pain, but also psychological pain too just as we now take it for granted that it was the right thing to do to eradicate smallpox. No one is is seriously suggesting that we bring smallpox back, and it doesn't depend on consensus on metaethics. I would hope that experience below hedonic zero, which one can trust we will be able to find its precise molecular signature, I hope that consensus will emerge that we should phase it out too. Sorry, this isn't much uh, in the way of practical guidance to today's uh, roboticists and AI researchers, but I suppose I'm just expressing my uh, hope here.
0: No, I think I share that. I think that we have to do ethics on a deadline, but I think that there are certain ethical things whose deadline is much longer or which doesn't necessarily have a real concrete deadline, uh, like for, with your example of the pain anesthesia drugs.
1: In my view, metaethics is mostly useful for people like us or other philosophers and effective altruists who can inform our own advocacy. We want to figure out what we care about, and then we go forth and push for that. And then maybe to some extent, it may diffuse through society in certain ways, but in the start, it's just helping us figure out what we want to push for.
0: There's an extent to which the evolution of human civilization has also been an evolution of of meta-ethical views, which are consciously or unconsciously being developed. Brian, your view is simply that 90% of what has causal efficacy over what happens in the end are going to be like military and economic and sort of just like raw optimization forces that work on this planet.
1: And also politics and mimetic spandrels. For example, like people talk about the rise of postmodernism as replacement of metaethical realism with anti-realism in popular culture, and I think that is a real development. One can question to what extent it matters. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe it's correlated with things like a decline in religiosity, which matters more. But I think that that is one a good example of how metaethics can actually go popular and mainstream. Right.
0: And, and so I mean, just to bring this back, I think that in terms of the AI alignment problem, I, I think I try to, be, or at least I'd like to be a bit more optimistic about how much causal efficacy each part of thinking has causal efficacy over the AI alignment problem. I like to not, or I tend not to think that 90% of it will in the end be due to rogue impersonal forces like you were discussing I think that everyone, uh, no matter who you are, stands to gain from more meta-ethical thinking insofar as that whether you take realist or anti-realist views, the expression of your values or whatever you think your values might be, whether they might be uh, conventional or relative or arbitrary in your view, or whether they might relate to some sort of objectivity, they're much likely less to be expressed in, I think, a reasonable and, and good way without sufficient meta thinking and discussion.
2: One thing, I would very much hope that before, for example, radiating out across the cosmos, we would sort out our problems on Earth and the solar system first. Regardless of whether one is a secular or religious or a classical or a negative utilitarian, let's not start thinking about colonizing nearby solar systems or anything there. But uh, yeah, if if one is uh, an optimist, one may be thinking of opportunities for gone, but uh, at least wait a few centuries. Because I think in a fundamental sense, we do not understand the nature of reality and not understanding the nature of reality comes with not understanding the nature of value and disvalue or the experience of value and disvalue, as Brian might
1: put it. Unfortunately, I'm more pessimistic than David. I think the the forces of expansion will be hard to stop, as they always have been historically. Nuclear weapons are something that almost everybody wishes hadn't been developed, and yet they were developed. Climate change is something that people would like to stop, but it has kind of a force of its own due to the difficulty of coordination. So I think the same will be true for space colonization and AI development as well. That We can make tweaks around the edges, but the large trajectory will be determined by the runaway economic and technological situation that we find ourselves in.
2: I fear Brian may be right. I used to sometimes think about the possibility of so-called cosmic rescue missions if the rare earth hypothesis is false and suffering Darwinian life exists within our cosmological horizon. I used to imagine this idea that we would radiate out and prevent suffering elsewhere. A, I suspect the rare earth hypothesis is true, but B, I suspect even if uh, suffering life forms do exist elsewhere within our Hubble volume, it's probably more likely humans or our successors would go out and just create more suffering, or it's a rather dark and pessimistic view. In my more optimistic moments, I think we will phase out suffering altogether in the next few centuries, but these are guesses, really.
0: Right. I mean, so we're dealing with ultimately, given AI and it being the most powerful optimization process or the seed optimization process to radiate out from Earth. I mean, we're dealing with potential astronomical waste or astronomical value or astronomical disvalue. And if we tie this again into moral uncertainty and sort of start thinking about William McCaskill's work on moral uncertainty, where we kind of just do what might be like expected value calculations with regards to our moral uncertainty and sort of try to be very mathematical about it and and consider the amount of matter and energy that we are dealing with here, given a super intelligent optimization process coming from Earth. I think that tying this all together and and considering it all should potentially play an important role in our AI strategy. I definitely feel very sympathetic to Brian's views that in the end, it might all simply come down to these impersonal, economic and political and, and militaristic and mimetic forces which exist but given moral uncertainty, given meta uncertainty, and given the amount of matter and energy that is at stake, potentially some portion of AI strategy should play into circumventing those forces or trying to uh, get around them or, or decrease them and, and their effects and hold on AI alignment.
1: Yeah, I think it's tw- tweaks around the edges, as I said, unless these approaches become very mainstream. But I think the prior probability that AI alignment of the type that you would hope for becomes worldwide is low because the prior probability that any given thing becomes worldwide mainstream is low. But you can certainly influence local communities who share those ideals and they can try to influence things to the extent possible.
0: Right. But I mean, maybe something potentially more sinister is that it doesn't need to become worldwide if there is like a singleton scenario or if the the power and control over the AI is very small within like a tiny organization or some small organization, which has power and autonomy to do this kind of thing?
1: Yeah, I guess I, I would again say the, the probability that you will influence those people would be low. Personally, I would imagine it would be either within a government or a large corporation. Maybe we have disproportionate impact on AI developers relative to the average human. But especially as it beco- as AI becomes more powerful, I would expect more and more actors to try to have an influence. So our proportional influence would decline.
0: Well, I'm feeling very pessimistic after all of this, huh? <laughs> <laughs> Morality is not real and everything's probably going to shit because economics and politics is going to drive it all in the end, huh?
2: Well, it's also possible that we're heading for a, a glorious future of superhuman bliss beyond the bounds of everyday experience, and that this is just the fag end of Darwinian life.
0: Right, David, we'll be having, I think as you say, one day we might have thoughts as beautiful as sunsets.
2: What a beautiful night to end on. I mean, <laughs> Well,
0: Yeah, I, I hope that one day we have thoughts as beautiful as sunsets and that suffering is a thing of the past, whether that be objective or subjective within the context of an empty, cold universe of just entropy. <laughs> Great. Well, yeah, thank you so much, Brian and uh, David. Do you guys have any more questions or anything you'd like to say or any plugs, any last minute things?
1: Yeah, I'm interested in promoting research on how you should tweak AI trajectories if you are foremost concerned about suffering. A lot of this work is being done by the Foundational Research Institute, which aims to avert S-risks, especially as they are related to AI. And so I would encourage people interested in futurism to think about suffering scenarios in addition to extinction scenarios. And also people who are interested in suffering-focused ethics to become more interested in futurism and um, thinking about how they can affect long-term trajectories.
2: Visit my websites urging the use of biotechnology to phase out suffering uh, in favor of gradients of intelligent bliss for all sentient beings. I'd also like just to say uh, thank you, uh, Lucas, for this podcast and all the work that you're doing.
1: Yeah, thanks for having us on.
0: Yeah, thank you. Two bodhisattvas if I've ever met them. If only. (laughs) Thanks so much, guys. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe, give it a like, or share it on your preferred social media platform. We'll be back again soon with another episode in the AI Alignment series.